6.04 on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. North Star! Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Uh, Halford and Bruff of the Morning is also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Three dealerships to serve you better. North Shore Acura. Acura of Langley and Burrard Acura on Terminal Avenue. Hour one of the Halbro experience in the books. Hour two begins now. And what better way to start the hour than by talking to the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, Brendan Batchelor here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. What up, Batch? How are you? Good. Uh, here in beautiful Penticton, getting ready for the start of the Young Stars tomorrow. So hockey season is officially here, basically. Who are you curious to watch up in Penticton? Uh, there, there's a couple of guys. Probably Linus Carlson is at, at the top of the list for me as a guy that you know was the SHL Rookie of the Year last year in Sweden, uh, a player that you know initially didn't arrive with much fanfare when the Canucks acquired him because, of course, they had traded Jonathan Dolan away to get him, and uh, you know at the time that that was not a move that that people thought was a, a smart one. But Carlson has developed into a pretty good player here, so. You know, he he's probably top of that list. Niels Oman as well is a guy that, you know, they brought in as a free agent that the Avalanche had uh, drafted and elected not to sign. So a couple of guys that might have some interesting upside and, and are likely players that, you know, fans will see playing uh, in Abbotsford this year. So interested to see what those two guys in particular could bring. It seems to me, this is just a theory here, I could be off here. Um, but when you're trying to mine diamonds in the rough, it's not usually like a guy that has this amazing talent that nobody's ever noticed. It's normally, um, and I'm thinking about players like, um, Yannick Hansen or Alex Burroughs or Antoine Roussel. It's these hardworking types with grit and, and a uh, willing to do whatever it takes to make it to the NHL, like the type of guys that never let the dream die. Um, I'm wondering if there's anyone in this group that is kind of reminiscent of that. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of free agent invites or or guys that you know don't have an NHL contract, don't have an AHL contract, weren't drafted. And part of that, of course, is because the Canucks don't have the, the deepest prospect pool and the fact that, you know, a lot of the guys they have drafted are either college guys, so they don't take part in this tournament, or European pros who are, are getting their season underway. You look at, you know, Jonathan Lekermacki, that's a, a perfect example of their first-round pick this past year. He's overseas playing uh, in Sweden. But, you know, the, there are some guys here that, that could – fill that role I guess I don't know if anybody jumps off the page to me in particular um you know I I think Jet Wu is an interesting guy in terms of his pro hockey career hasn't gone the way that maybe you would have expected uh but he's still only 22 but that said he was a second round pick so I don't know if I put him in the in the same conversation as as guys like Burroughs and and Hanson but I I think that's what the intriguing part of this tournament is uh is you know, for example, you look at a guy like Antoine Roussel for the Canucks, who was here as a young star in the early stages of this tournament, 
and then went on to have an NHL career and ended up back playing for the Vancouver Canucks as, as a guy that, you know, was, was taking part as a, a free agent invite for the Canucks when he played in this tournament, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, that, that to me is the intriguing thing about this tournament is it gives guys a platform where they may not otherwise have one. Like, certainly you're going to be excited to see the, the high draft picks from all these teams and the guys that may have a, a, an obvious NHL future based on their pedigree. But uh, don't count out some of these guys that, that are getting a chance here because, you know, you, you can make the most of this chance. And it's, it's the same reason we always see at the draft every year, people will say, you know, just because guys weren't drafted doesn't mean that they can't carve out an NHL career for themselves. And that's absolutely true. And, you know, you look at a guy like Alex Burroughs, he is the poster boy for that sort of storyline. We're speaking to ben, Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on the Halford & Brush Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Batch, you mentioned you're up in Penticton for Young Stars. Uh, that comes on the heels of a week where most of the media was out at Scotiabarn watching the Canucks practice, listening to some Canucks meet with the media. So a pretty eventful week, as you kind of suggested, we get closer and closer to hockey really being back. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from the week at Scotiabarn? I know we had Horvat meeting with the media. We had Pedersen meeting with the media. Quinn Hughes playing on the right side in a bit of a switch there. What was Brendan Batchelor's big takeaway from the abbreviated week at Scotiabarn? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was, you know, Elias Pedersen coming in and seeming a lot more at ease and comfortable to start the year. Because, of course, we all know how last year went where he was dealing with the injury and the contract situation wasn't settled, so he didn't have training camp. Um, and and obviously he had the, the poor start to the season. He seemed really relaxed. He seemed like, you know, he's, he's had a good summer. Um he uh, flew in the night before, arrived at 7 p.m., said he was awake at 4 in the morning because the time change um, was bothering him, I guess, to a certain extent, and was still out on the ice at eight rinks that morning getting work in and, and preparing for the season. So, you know, based on some of the things he said about, you know, understanding and learning and maturing uh, from the experience of, of struggling last year, you know, he, he feels to me like a guy that is primed to have a strong start to the year and potentially to have a, a breakout season offensively, too. And, you know, certainly if he can do that, it, it helps the Canucks in a, a variety of different ways. But, you know, I, I was impressed by, by how relaxed he seemed. You know, he was joking with the media that he hadn't spoken English in a few months and uh, was, was having to get back up to speed in terms of media and sort of joked on his way out of the room that, don't worry, my answers are going to get worse here as I remember how to do this all again. So, you know, the fact that Pedersen came in seeming comfortable, seeming relaxed, seeming confident, uh, I think is a really good sign ahead of the upcoming season. Where do you think he'll end up on the line uh, in, in the lineup? Do you think do you think they'll have him as a center, or do you think he'll be on the wing to start? I think if they can play him as a center, they will. Um, mainly just because Boudreaux has has kind of tipped his hand there in terms of saying that he likes the center ice depth of having Miller, Pedersen, and Horvat all playing down the middle. Uh, so I don't know if you would call him the two C or the three C. I guess it depends on how they try to deploy 
those lines. You know, in the past, Horvat's been more of the shutdown guy. Uh, Miller with the new contract, you expect to be the number one centerman. So, you know, it, it does make me wonder, as I think I mentioned when we talked about this last week, if they can find some favorable matchups for Pedersen, if they're going to try and play Horvat the, the tough minutes up against the number one line of the other team and, and Miller is going to play a big role. Uh, I wonder if, if Pedersen could potentially get some favorable matchups and that could help his start to the year too. But um, I would imagine unless they, they have some injuries on the wing through preseason and training camp, you know, they've got so many guys that can play the wing now with, you know, the additions of Kuzmenko and Mikheyev coming in. And that's even something that Horvat spoke about this week is the fact that he might actually have some consistent line mates for once because of the number of options they have on the wing. In light of all that, I think it's. It, I, I would be surprised if Pedersen started the season on the wing. Whether he ends up there at certain points, depending on various situations and things that happen, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But you know, I expect him to play the middle from the start of the year anyway. When it comes to last season and the start that Pedersen had, uh, do you think the long story short version is just that he lost his confidence? Yeah, absolutely, and you know even. This week, talking to the media, he was sort of given the out of, uh, you know, you were having the wrist injury. And and he said, you know, yes, maybe it was a factor, but it wasn't that big of a factor. And and he was, you know, very honest, I think, in saying that it, it was a confidence issue and it was an issue where maybe his focus wasn't on the right things because of some of the distractions coming into the year, because of the pressure of a, a new contract that he now had to live up to. And, you know, that's one thing that he said that he's really learned from is the focus has to be on hockey and on himself and, and all of that external noise uh, isn't, isn't necessarily something that you want to focus on, isn't going to benefit your game. And so, yeah, I'm sure that, you know, maybe injuries played a factor, but we all saw, you know, how he played down the stretch. And it, it was clearly... Or, or how he played in the first part of the season, I should say, before he figured things out down the stretch. It, it was clear that the guy didn't have a lot of confidence. And, you know, I think it was that game against the Hurricanes where he ended up, you know, missing an opportunity and tripping over a stick and falling into the end boards. And it was kind of one of those things where nothing was going right for him. But, you know, it's one of those sayings in, in hockey that you have to make your own bounces as well. And, uh, he, he started to figure that out again and, and got back to the kind of player that, you know, we all knew he was capable of being in the second half of the season. So, you know, he says he's learned from it. He says he's matured and, and understands what it takes to, you know, get out of a slump like that because now he's done it and he's gone through it. And he, he seems confident coming into the year anyway. So, you know, whether that translates on the ice or not, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, just the the swagger he came in with to me spoke to a much more confident Elias Patterson than the guy we saw, you know, just under a year ago. Is he the guy that you're going to be watching closest in training camp and, and, and preseason, or is there someone else out there that really intrigues you? Maybe it's a wild card. Maybe you don't know what to expect from this player. Um, so you'll be watching closely. I think it's probably Andre Kuzmenko uh, just because, you know, what he ends up becoming this season could drastically change the the way you build out this roster. If he can come in and have a strong rookie year 
and be, you know, a legitimate top six option, then that that pushes out your depth on the wing even further. And, you know, I believe Bruce Boudreaux has been quoted as saying already that they want to play him in every single preseason game so they can get a, a real good feel for the kind of player that he is and the kind of role that he could fit into. Um, and, and, you know, for me personally, not having been able to see him play a whole lot, trying to, to understand the kind of player he is, the kind of, you know, successes he may be able to have in the NHL and the areas of his game where he may need to, to work on to improve coming over and, and playing in North America. But, you know, for for most of the other guys, if not all of the other guys that will be on the opening night roster, there's a book on them in terms of, of what they'll potentially be in the NHL. Even Vasily Podkolzin, you know, took a, a number of steps in his game in the second half of last season. So there's a, a platform for him to build on there. But Kuzmenko, you know, at least for me anyway, comes in with kind of a blank slate. So I'm interested to see how he fits in, how Boudreaux sees him fitting in in terms of uh, the hierarchy of where he's going to play in the lineup and ultimately how his game translates to the NHL. Have you thought about the defensive pairings in the terms of what would be the ideal pairings for a guy like Jack Rathbone to make the team? Yeah, well, uh, if they move Hughes to the right side, which we saw him at least doing a little bit at, at Scotia Barn this week, skating with OEL, then, you know, to me, that opens up opportunity on the left side for a guy like Jack Rathbone. And that may be part of their thinking if indeed they are going to go that route, because if, you know, you, you keep Hughes on the left side and OEL's on the left side too, then suddenly you've got Rathbone in a battle on that third pairing. And, you know, Travis Dermott's a guy that can play either side. So they could, I guess, move him over to, to the right side. But um, I wonder if, you know, there's, there's a couple of things at play if they are indeed going to explore playing Hughes on the right side. And, and one of them may be uh, trying to get Jack Rathbone onto the roster or at least giving him the opportunity to earn a roster spot. I don't think anything's going to be given to him. Um, but that, that is the scenario that I look at and say, okay, maybe that makes the most sense if, if Rathbone's going to make the team. The thing I worry about with Hughes moving to the right side is that to a certain extent, it's putting your eggs all in one basket. And, um, you know, maybe you can play Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson, you know, a solid percentage of the game, but, you know, Ekman Larson's not a, an incredibly young defenseman, so you're probably not going to play him, you know, 30 minutes a night, let's say, which means that, you know, in that scenario, there's potentially more than half of the game where Ekman Larson and Hughes are not on the ice. Whereas if you spread things out a little bit more, then, you know, at least you have one of those guys out there in most situations. So uh, I would imagine this is something that the coaching staff has workshopped quite a lot that we may even see them workshop going through training camp and into the preseason. But, um, you know, in terms of a guy like Jack Rathbone, what they decide to do with Quinn Hughes and the trickle down effect could very well determine whether he's in the top six on night one, whether he's on the roster on night one, or, you know, where his fate ultimately lies going into this year. I've always found that it's a really simple formula. If you have two pairs that you feel good about, your defense is fine. But if you don't, then it's a problem, right? And and I think this is kind of what you're getting at, right? If it's OEL and Hughes on a pairing and you feel good about that pairing, 
What's your second pairing? Is it Dermot and Myers? Probably. I, I mean, maybe maybe it could be Rathbone and Myers if you feel like he can play in that sort of role right away. Although, you know, as a guy that doesn't have a ton of NHL experience, I don't know if I would try to drop him into a, a top four role right away. But, yeah, you know, as much as the Canucks – Blue line makeup, I think we can all agree, is not ideal. Probably needs to be upgraded at some point in the coming seasons, if possible. You know, I I kind of look at what they accomplished last year down the stretch with the top four that they had, where it was OEL and Myers and Hughes and Shen. And yeah, you know, on paper and in practice, Luke Shen probably shouldn't be a top four defenseman in the NHL right now. You know, they were able to win with that top four last yeah, year. So, it worked. I'm, I, you know, whether whether it can continue to work in even the short term or the long term is certainly a question that um, that, that we can discuss. And, and, you know, just because it worked last year doesn't mean it's going to work this year. But that that is my worry if you move Hughes to the right side is then you have two pairings that maybe you don't trust 100% which means you're going to have to lean on Ekman Larson and Hughes a lot. And particularly for Ekman Larson, you know, I think Hughes can handle the big minutes. He's still a young guy that, you know, hasn't had a, a ton of, of miles in terms of NHL minutes. But for Ekman Larson to expect him at this point in his career to play big, big, big minutes, I don't know if that's uh, sustainable long-term either. So uh, this is the problem you have when, you know, you don't have the depth on the blue line that you would like, and it's going to be an interesting one for the coaching staff to try and sort through once training camp gets underway next week. I, I suppose the other wild card on, on the back end is Tucker Pullman, almost for, for two reasons. Number one, his health, and obviously we hope his health is um, good and remains good. But the other one is, I, I don't know. Maybe you have a different take on this batch, but I, I feel like we never really got a got a handle on what Tucker Pullman is as a hockey player last season. No, I I kind of agree. It, it feels like a long time ago since we saw him play, and you know there were some ups, there were some downs, but you know the the majority of, of Tucker Pullman's body of work, if I'm not mistaken, and I'd have to look at, at the game logs and the numbers, was you know under Travis Green before the coaching change was made. So. Um, you know, in terms of, of how he might fit into the way Boudreaux wants to play, uh, where he might fit in in the lineup, who might be his ideal partner, all of these things, you know, to me are, are still open questions. On top of the fact, you're right, that, you know, his health is, is, you know, up in the air after the issues he went through last year. And, you know, at least from everyone we've spoken to from the Canucks, it sounds like he's you know, trending in the right direction and is going to be good to go to start training camp. But, you know, we know, as we saw with Michael Furland in the past, that, you know, just because you're ready to be on the ice one day doesn't mean that you're going to be the next day or the day after that. So, um, again, that's that's something as well that will greatly impact, I'm sure, their decisions on the back end because, you know, whether whether you love Tucker Pullman and think there's high potential for him or, or whether you don't like him and didn't like the signing and don't like the fit, you know, he's a number that would be in your top six, albeit probably on your third pairing, if he's healthy and able to play. And if he's not, then that's another hole that they're going to have to find a way to fill from within. Uh, at least it looks that way for the moment with their cap situation and, and where they're at right now in the off season with training camp getting pretty close to being underway. So 
There, there are certainly more questions than there are answers when it comes to Tucker Pullman and what he could be for the Canucks this year, whether he's in the lineup or not. Batch, I love talking hockey with you again. Uh, the season is coming up. Uh, enjoy Penticton, and thanks for joining us today. Sounds good. Thanks, boys. All right. See you, Batch. Brendan Batchelor uh, joining the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Frank Saravalli, our insider. This is his first hit of this current season with the Halford & Bruff Show. We'll ask him. We'll replace the whole JT Miller thing with Bo Horvat. What's he hearing about Bo Horvat's contract extension situation? Does he expect a contract to be signed before training camp starts? Not this weekend, but next weekend in Whistler. We'll also ask him about Jake Vertanen, what he's hearing on that front. You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. Thirty-one on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Halford and Bruff. Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle. You get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is also brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura Dealer today. To the phone lines we go. You know we're getting closer to the start of hockey season when daily face-offs Frank Saravalli gets back in the rotation. Our regular Thursday guest here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sports 650. Uh, let's kick things off now. Joining us, it is Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Hello, boys. Great to be back. Hope you had a great summer and uh, hope all is well. Yeah, we did. Thank- I hope you had a great summer as well. Our summer was great because we got to finally put to bed all of the JT Miller discussion, conversation, speculation, what have you. However, we were able to easily replace the name JT Miller with Bo Horvat. So welcome to it, Frank. It's now endless Bo Horvat contract speculation moving forward. That's how the media has shifted now. Do you have any sense of where the negotiations are at, how things are playing out? I know it can be difficult with the new look Canucks front office and, you know, old Johnny Tightlips, Patrick Alvin doesn't give the media an awful lot to to work with here, but we did get some understanding that they're working towards a resolution. We assume that they'd like to get it done before camp, but we just don't have a ton of answers at the ready. Johnny Tightlips, is that his new nickname? We're working on it. We workshopped it earlier. It, it's got a ring to it, but we might need something a little bit more Nordic. Yeah, I was going to say, work is the key phrase in that. you got some work to do. Um, I would say, look, they're working on it. Um, I don't think there's quite as much pressure or attention on it um, as there was to try and get something done with JT Miller, which I think by all accounts, I think still surprised people with how that process moved forward because they were not anywhere close at the start of free agency and, and really throughout most of the summer. And to get there and get it done, um, man, it would take a lot of pressure and focus off of, you know, a lot of these off-ice things if you could get Bo Horvat done prior even to training camp opening or 
if not that, then the regular season. I think that would be the ideal scenario. But look, um, there are a lot of players that go into the season in the last year of their deal for various reasons. And, you know, I, I think there's a long-term fit and long-term future for Bo Horvat in Van. Um, I, you know, I don't know exactly what that number looks like. And I, I also don't think it's a gargantuan, gigantic raise um, off of what he's currently making. So um, certainly an important feature and, and piece of the Canucks moving forward. But with regards to, to getting something done, I don't think there's quite as much heat on it as much as you guys may want there to be. Why do you think there's less heat when it comes to Bo Horvat's contract situation as opposed to JT Miller's? Well, I think part of it is you just look at how much JT Miller exceeded not just expectations, but also his current deal, like putting up 200 and what was it? 17 points in 202 career games with the Canucks um, being a heart and soul player, a, a driver for that team uh, knocking on the door of a 100 point season, you know, the Canucks are much worse off moving forward if they don't have JT Miller. And I, and I think for a lot of the reasons that we talked about, um, you know, heading into the off season is, you know, you don't want to go into this year with all these questions and the expectations that the Canucks have to get in the playoffs. And, you know, either way, either not having a deal done and, and being close to a playoff team and, and wanting to keep him and then potentially having him walk out the door for nothing. Um, you know, bringing it back to, to Bo Horvat, like certainly the Canucks want to get something done. I think Bo Horvat wants to stay in Vancouver and um, it's been a great fit, but I don't, I don't think there's been such a quantum leap in terms of the earnings that I don't think you look at this one and scratch your head and say, man, how's this, how are the pieces all going to fit together here? It seems more or less like something, you know, that's well within the realm of possibility, not just for the Canucks and their cap situation, but, you know, moving forward, like there's not a lot of guesswork that goes into this one. And certainly being a couple of years younger than JT Miller, I think that makes it easier as well. There's just not as much heavy lifting to do. No, I, I, I agree with you. I'm just wondering if there's something that we might have missed because Horvat's contract situation always seemed more straightforward, right? Like we knew what Horvat was as a player. Like you mentioned, he was a few years younger, so you didn't have the as as much of the aging concerns. You you always assumed that Horvat wanted to stay in Vancouver, where that question always kind of lingered with mm -hmm. JT Miller. But the the fact of the matter is that Horv that Miller actually got done and. Horvat hasn't. So I'm just wondering if there's there might have been something that we missed in this contract no. negotiation. I don't think so at all. I think there was so much focus on trying to get Miller done. Look at the way teams have attacked various scenarios this summer. Like the Calgary Flames, for instance, were so focused on getting Johnny Gaudreau done that until they had an answer on Gaudreau one way or the other, they weren't even going to begin to focus on Matthew Kachuk. So Gaudreau happens, then it's Kachuk the next in the pecking order. And, of course, he lets them know quietly that he's not coming back and the trade materializes and then you move on from there. There's a process and an order to these things. Getting Miller done a few weeks ago allows them to now focus their time and attention and energy on Horvat, which I'm sure they'd like to do so that they can end conversations like this one. 
Uh, turning to another player, Frank, uh, there are a number of listeners that would would like us to never mention the name Jake Vertanen again on Vancouver mm-hmm. Sports Talk Radio uh, Airwaves. But the fact of the matter, again, to use that phrase, is, is that Jake Vertanen's name has been trending on Twitter in Vancouver the last two days as reports have surfaced that maybe the Oilers or the Flames or the Capitals might be interested in Vertanen either with a contract or a PTO. What are you hearing about Jake Vertanen? Well, there's a number of teams that are clearly in conversation with him, and I was talking um, with an NHL general manager yesterday about this very subject, and, you know, it's, it's a really difficult conversation to have um, for a number of different reasons. And, you know, I, I personally wrestle with this one. Um, and I think GMs and front offices are as well. Um, you know, I have a daughter I was talking to your general manager. He has a daughter um, and you're, you're working through it and, and no one wants that kind of noise around their team and that kind of controversy or stir, uh, especially heading into a new season. But What's difficult to wrestle with is that Jake Vertanen went through a a due process in court. He had his day, he showed up, um, and he was found not guilty. Um, People that go through the process and are found guilty and do time in jail are then permitted once they get out, they have a right to earn a living. So should Jake Vertanen no longer have a right to earn a living because of what he was accused of? We don't know what happened, um, but he did go through the process and was found not guilty. So should he, should he be out of a chance now? I I don't know that to be the case. And I, that's certainly what teams are wrestling with as well. Um, You know, this manager that I was talking to was saying, I try to think of myself as someone that's truly committed to doing the right things. I want to try and help. I got to be honest, I wrestle with it, but I always try to come back to what's right, and that's a hard one for me. So um, part of my conversation uh, yesterday, and I, you know, I think teams are trying to figure out what's the right call here. Should we just stay away? Should we give this player a chance? And, and even if we're bringing this player in um, and we're willing to give him that chance based on all that's happened, what does he have to offer to our team? That's the other part of it that they're talking about as well. Yeah, that's the kind of thing, that's actually that last part is what we focused on when we were talking about earlier in the show, and uh, I don't want to say we glossed over the first part of it, but we were sitting there going like, you know, no one in the NHL has watched Vertanen closer than hockey fans and and media in, in Vancouver. Like, there isn't really anything that he does particularly well. And And Mike and I were kind of joking, like, do these other teams not have scouts? And I'm just wondering, you know, what it is that any GMs that are interested in Vertanen really see there. Well, it's it's everyone's kind of infatuated with the size. Um, like, can we turn this player into a power forward that I think, you know, made him the sixth overall pick way back when in 2014? I can't believe that was eight years ago. Um, and you see, you know, you, you saw glimpses of it briefly at times where it seemed like he was finally kind of putting things together. And then, um, you know, all of a sudden the wheels fall off. And the thing that I always come back to watching Jake Bertan and I think talking to executives around the league, what they come back to is just the lack of hockey IQ 
like, you know, he's got things that you can't buy size and skating ability and all these different things. But if you can't think the game and process it properly, then all those things kind of go to waste because things happen so fast at the NHL level. And so you can't learn on the fly. Um, and, and if you don't have it, you're not just suddenly going to develop hockey IQ. So um, that's really been the big hangup for Jake Vertanen and his career on the ice. Uh, as it pertains to the professional tryouts, we have noticed that more and more in the coming days. Now, it's kind of a rite of passage, the, the last PTO two weeks. PTO season. Yeah, it's PTO season. Is it fair to suggest that we might see more than ever before because of the financial landscape? I'm looking at it now, and it seems like every day there's another fairly prominent NHLer. Like Eric Stahl's got one now, James Neal, Derek Broussard, Danny DeKaiser here in Vancouver, Derek Stepan, Alex Chason. It just seems like there are so many veteran guys that kind of got squeezed by the flat cap that maybe we've got a chance to see more of these than ever before. Yeah, we're up to 32 now, yep. and what do all those guys that you just mentioned have in common? They're all on the wrong side of 30. Right. And I think part of the, the big hang-up for some of these players has been a lot of it has, has been foot speed. Like that's the other thing that, that all these guys have in common is they're not generally fast. They can't move quite as well as they once did. And that's, it, it goes to show you, it's not just a money thing. Like that's part of it. Cause like any team can sign any player, as long as you have the 50 man contract space to a $750,000 league minimum deal. And worse comes to worse. You put the player on waivers and, and, put them in the minors and there's no cap consequences. That's not the risk. And teams aren't counting every penny on that front in terms of, um, you know, what it means to their overall budget in order to give a player that type of deal. It's can this player come in and earn a spot? Is he better than what we currently have? Or are we better suited giving it to a younger player that can grow into the role and we can find out more about what we have? That's, that's a huge part of it um, is Teams don't want to box out players that are coming up. They want to see what they have in camp and see, you know, even if it's close to being just as good, the upside of giving a player that kind of opportunity is really important to teams as they continue the development process. So um, there is a certain, I think, push and pull that exists between manager and coach where the manager, um, you know, more often than not is leaning towards getting a younger player in there to see more. And the coach wants that security blanket of a vet that they can rely on that's trustworthy, that you know exactly what you're going to get. And so that's a lot of what you see play out with some of these PTOs. And we've had, I don't know, a handful, five, six, seven, eight every year where those guys seem to ultimately earn contracts. Um, I feel like, you know, certain guys have been doing it forever uh, that they need to come in and, and basically sing for their supper. Mm. And they're really good at it in a pressure pack situation. I've got to think that part of this is a lot of general managers looking for either band-aid or stopgap solutions on the cheap, waiting for that salary cap to go up. What are executives kind of envisioning uh, I know with regards to the timeline, it's a little bit more clear, but just how big of a jump they're going to get so that maybe they can do a little bit more financial wheeling and dealing in the future. So that's what's really interesting is the projection, of course, as you know, is two seasons from now. So this season and one more um, under this supposed flat cap. And the projections that I've heard in the last few weeks uh, coming from both NHL and NHLPA sources is a $9 million increase in 2024-25 
Now, there has been talk, and I don't know how much support there's been, but can you imagine handing some of these GMs a $9 million increase in one summer? Right. Like, yeah. what, what an absolute bonanza for whoever times it correctly uh, to hit free agency in that summer. And so the thought process has been, well, teams could really use the help now. Why don't we take this $9 million increase, and obviously it's not happening this year, um, but smooth it over a, a period of three years or two years where you can get immediate relief on the front end, now having a better idea of when this $1 billion debt to owners is going to be repaid. I, d- I don't think it's going to happen because this has already all been negotiated, but I know there's been some buzz and chatter about the idea of it because it would help teams as soon as next year as opposed to just a $1 million increase. Frank, this was great today, man. Thanks a lot for doing this. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend. We'll do this again next Thursday. Glad to be back, guys. Talk to you next Thursday. Glad to have you back, bud. Thanks. That's Frank Saravalli from Daily Faceoff here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Um, So I just want to set up. I know we got some time before the break, so we can go in whatever direction, but I feel like we've almost kind of buried what I thought was going to be the lead from the show today, and that was at 8 o'clock. We're going to talk to one of the greatest Seahawk linebackers of all time, K.J. Wright's going to join us. Now, he's up here as part of a Seahawks initiative with um, Friday Night Lights, football, like high school football type stuff. They're also doing stuff with the BC Lions as well. Sort of the Seahawks traveling convoy, but it's the timing is really interesting because mm-hmm. K.J.'s doing media availability in the same week where he and a number of Seahawks alumni were in the building on Monday Night for Monday Night Football and the return of Russell Wilson. The game itself was a big deal, and then everything in the aftermath about what it meant to Pete Carroll and what it meant to the old alumni and all the old stories of a lack of harmony between Russ and some of his teammates. It's cool that we're going to get to talk to K.J. Wright about that coming up in about 13 minutes' time. What's a big question you have for K.J. Wright? Did Russell Wilson audible in the Super Bowl? (laughs) Are you really going to ask him? I might ask it at the end. (laughs) Okay. No, man, lead with that. Leave just just go question. for it. Just First go for question. it. Do yeah. it, Russ. Come in. KJ, gotta, hello. Hello. Throw the uppercut right away. No, I mean. Just so everyone knows, uh, don't expect uh, KJ Wright to throw Russ under the bus just because uh, I've, I've actually uh, listened to a few interviews he's had um, in recent days in Seattle. Um, and he he kind of said he's like he listen I he said I I have a pretty good relationship with Russell Russell Wilson he loved Russell Wilson but he does acknowledge that other guys on the team thought a little bit differently and they had different styles of relationships within the team for me uh, the one question I want to ask KJ Wright is how did that Super Bowl loss affect the Seahawks just from um, kind of a psyche perspective sure. The How did, psyche of the team. I think I, that's fair. I'd also like to ask him, was it tough for the Seahawks to stick together as a group with that many big egos involved? Yeah, that's a really good question to ask as I pat you on the back for coming up with a good question. Thank but, you. Um, because I think when you go back and look at that team with the benefit of hindsight and retrospect and everything, mm-hmm. you really understand um, not just how much talent there was, but how many big personalities they were. Like, KJ went out of, his, out of his way. So he does a show every Wednesday from 8 to 9 a.m. on 710 a.m. Sports Talk Radio. KJ Wright. It's called okay. the KJ Wright Show. So oh, that's, that's, that's a good name for it. Yeah, it's pretty, it works, right? I can't say that it doesn't. Uh, so he was talking about his personality, and I think he was talking about him and Cliff Averill. 
And he's like, Cliff and I were guys that could get along with anybody. But that was almost their personality. Yeah. There's people like that. You know, oh, that guy's great. He can get along with anyone. Like, mm-hmm. Easy going and he can fit in every group. And he said there's other guys that aren't that. Right. And they don't necessarily want to get along with everybody because... No, they've got edge to their personality. Exactly, right? They're you not... think about a guy like Richard Sherman. Do you think he wants to be friends with everyone? Well, part of getting along with everyone sometimes is having a... Just go with the flow yeah. and biting tongue. And that's mm-hmm. not inherent to certain people. And I get that. But um, right... And it's funny now, like you talk about the most beloved members of those teams from the fan perspective. Yeah. It's like KJ Wright, Bobby Wagner. And what did they have in common? They were probably at least publicly two of the more selfless guys. Yeah. And weren't about accolades, individualism, all that kind of stuff. Well, so, now, now, hold on. I just want to continue on, on the thread here. It's funny because um, I was I had drafted Trevor Lawrence in a fantasy league. This isn't a fantasy football. Oh, good. Story, Dude, okay? Let's talk about your fantasy team. They were talking about Trevor Lawrence and year two and how he was going to become a better quarterback. Mm-hmm. And his running back, Travis Etienne, said, you got to understand, in the NFL, you have to be cocky and you have to be brash and you have to be bold. And he said, and it's not because... Um, it's like what your coaches want to see. It's that your teammates need to see swagger. Like your teammates, and they won't believe you as a leader or a guy that's going to take them to the promised land if you don't have that outward confidence. Because I don't know if you've seen Trevor. There's different, there's different ways to display that confidence. For sure, though. for sure. There's right? a but, quiet confidence yep. that I think, frankly, is the strongest type of confidence. But I think guys in the NFL may disagree because I think that the way, and again, a lot of it has to do with just the sheer physicality and violence of the NFL that if you appear weak or seem weak, someone's going to try. Did Bobby Wagner have brash swagger? There are certainly guys he that don't. He just made tackles are, over like, and over again. Again, we don't need to make this into an argument about me saying one thing and you saying the other. No, I'm just I'm saying just... It, it was interesting to hear him talk about that because a lot of times when you're talking about leadership in the quarterback position, you talk about you know, uh, lead by example and mm-hmm. who's the first in the building and all those sorts of acts. But he was actually saying, like, you need a guy that goes out there and is cocky and confident. And it's, it's at, at it, the it, very it, least yeah. displays, I got this, guys. Or we're yeah, going to be okay. I think it's all a part of it, right? Yeah. Like, especially with the quarterback, because I don't know if you saw the, the Jaguars put up a very short clip of Trevor Lawrence, like, quarter, addressing the team in the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Guys, we've got a great opportunity. <laughs> and I was like, I've never been less inspired by a guy. I'm not ready to go out there and run through a tunnel. Anyway, I tie this back to the Seahawks because if there's one thing you can say with those Seahawks teams that went to one Super Bowl and one and then lost the other one in dramatic fashion, there was a lot of confidence, right? Richard mm-hmm. Sherman, after locking up Michael Crabtree, you know, going on camera and saying, screaming, <laughs> screaming, like, I'm the like best, a lunatic. Right, but I'm the best cornerback. You can't beat me. Yeah. But, you know, that mentality, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But a a lot of other people were saying that was really great because he was right. Crabtree couldn't beat him. For me, there was three egos at play on the Seahawks. There was the collective ego of the defense, the Legion of Boom. There was Russell Wilson's ego, and there was Pete Carroll's ego. Yeah, that's that's fair. Right? Yep. And, And eventually what happened was obviously the defense just went away, right? And then it was left between Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll. And those two had been aligned for so long to the point that the defense would get frustrated with how Pete Carroll um, treated Russell Wilson kind of with kid gloves. And KG Wright actually, in, in one of the interviews uh, I listened to, acknowledged mm-hmm. this. He said, yeah. now that changed 
as Russell Wilson became a veteran player, but there was a feeling that Pete Carroll wanted to protect Russell Wilson when he was a younger quarterback, which is understandable, right? So you t- the anecdote Wright had was that they would be in like film study on the Monday after a Sunday game. Yeah. And then he'd be all over the defense. Like, we need more turnovers. We need to get stops. We need to do this. We need to do that. And then he wouldn't have those same criticisms of Russell Wilson. And all the guys in the defensive meeting were like, he threw three interceptions on the weekend, man. Like, why aren't you giving him the gears like yeah. you're giving the defense the gears? And that's an interesting dynamic too, right? But eventually, when it was just Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson left, and Russell Wilson was clearly the most important part of the team because it wasn't the defense anymore, then eventually the egos of Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson started to um, clash a little bit. Yeah, they did, right? And that it was the ultimate – that's how the ultimate divorce happened, I think, is when it became Pete versus Russ. And then it's like we need not, now need to go our – our own separate ways. And lo and behold, Russell Wilson is now a Denver Bronco, and Pete Carroll now has Geno Smith as his starting quarterback. We can ask KJ Wright about that as well, because he was there on Monday night with a lot of his former Seahawks alumni taking in that game. So again, coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650, legendary Seattle Seahawks linebacker KJ Wright. We'll talk about all things Russ, all things Monday Night Football. Hey, is the Seahawks team got a chance to go 2-0 against San Francisco this weekend? KJ Wright coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.